shalt thou make them in two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherubim of the one end and the other cherub of the other end. Even of the mercy seat shall you make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. And the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be. And thou shalt put in the mercy seat above upon the ark. And in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, once again, it is our honor and our privilege to gather together as your body of believers, knowing that you have promised to be in the midst of us when we gather together in your name. Lord, we simply want to worship you tonight. We want to understand the significance of this tabernacle, not only in the life of the Israelites, but in its spiritual significance in the big scheme of salvation. And so, Lord, I just pray and ask that you'd give us eyes to see and that you would help us, Lord, to see the wonders that you have built into this. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. The tabernacle is the subject of this text, and we're given an overview of it and some of the furniture that is in it. Actually, we are given the centerpiece, the heart of it, the, the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat that is described in those last verses. And really, uh, that is the, the symbolism of how God meets with his people, the ark is a box and that box is made out of acacia wood it is overlaid with gold in the box uh, there are some other items that will later be placed there but primarily it is the testimony it is the covenant it is the word of God that God has given to his people it is the law but on top of the box is described a mercy seat the mercy seat is pure gold and on the mercy seat there are two angels that are facing each other with their wings facing each other and God says I will commune with you from above the mercy seat there's a beautiful picture that is there that we will draw out a little later but it is the fact that it was only by God's mercy that covered the law that his people could have a relationship with him the law never did save the law never could save it was always the grace of God but what we find in this text primarily is the inventory list what are the items that are needed so God has called Moses up on the mountain he is telling Moses I, I want you all to build a tabernacle the first step is you take up an offering of these items because these are the raw materials that we are going to use to construct this tabernacle and then in the remainder of chapter 25 all the way up to chapter 31 we are given the details about the tabernacle as God is instructing Moses on how to build it and what materials to use for each part and and there's some redundancy in the book of Exodus that we're going to see because in these six chapters God is telling Moses what the items are how to build them and construct them and then in chapters 33 through 38 it, we're going to go right back over it again or at least it covers it again uh, when they are actually constructing those things so we will merge those two together uh, to get the full details 
just to remind you, the tabernacle is a temporary temple. It is a portable sanctuary for worship and sacrifice. God wasn't going to wait for his people to get to the promised land before they constructed a temple. It is the significant fact that they are his people and that he is going to commune with them and they're going to worship him. And so the first order of business is to construct the tabernacle, this portable tent of worship and meeting and sacrifice that will symbolize God's dwelling among them, give them a place to make offerings where God uh, can come commune with his people. Uh, It's going to be constructed at the very outset of the Jews' journey. Remember, they have just made it to Mount Sinai. That, That was the first big destination, and that is where God gives the Ten Commandments, which is actually a covenant. And they agree to the covenant. And then God calls Moses up on the mountain to give him more details about the law and then to give him pattern for the tabernacle. And then he will come off of that mountain and they will construct that tabernacle before they move on from there. Uh, By the way, that tabernacle would be used for 500 years until the permanent temple is built in Jerusalem. And so even though it is just a tent and it was meant to be mobile, it is mobile for a few, uh, few, few decades while they are in uh, the wilderness. But even when they get into the land, the temple is not built until the time of Solomon. And so 500 years, this tabernacle is used as their center of worship. Furthermore... No less than 50 chapters of the Bible are devoted to the tabernacle. You know, that shows the significance of it to the storyline of Scripture. Uh, While the Bible is a big book, when you consider that 50 chapters are dedicated to the tabernacle, that speaks volumes to us. That tells us that this is a significant landmark in the landscape of Scripture and that it has deeper meaning than just the fact that it was a tent that God wanted them to build. The tabernacle is significant not just in its function as the center of worship in Israel, but also in its symbolism and foreshadowing of Christ. Why is the tabernacle important? Why are there 50 chapters given to it if it was just going to be a temporary place of worship for Israel? Because in that temporary place of worship, we have the foreshadowing of Christ. We have typologies of Christ. We have symbolism and pictures of Christ in that tabernacle. Uh, For example, notice that the Lord instructed Moses to make the tabernacle, verse number 9, after the pattern. So let me read that verse to you once more. According to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. That begs the question, what pattern is God talking about? We've all used patterns. Uh, if you have if you have sewn uh, an item of clothing or, or a pillow, you've used a pattern. If you have done woodworking, you've used a pattern. If you've done construction or or, or machining, you you have a blueprint or a pattern to follow. It is a master plan, or it is a template, or it is a prototype off of which everything else is duplicated. Well, let me show you the significance of this. If you would, hold your place in Exodus 25 and turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 8. 
Hebrews is unique in the, in, the, in the scheme of Scripture because it is actually a commentary on the Old Testament. And in the book of Hebrews, like I was telling you this morning, uh, Paul explains how Gentile salvation fit into the plan of redemption. And sometimes he explains it to the Jews and he, he builds it into their context and background. And then other times he's explaining it to Gentiles. Well, Hebrews is the greatest explanation of Gentile salvation to the Jews. As a matter of fact, it is the greatest explanation of New Testament Christianity to the Jews. It is explaining how God could replace the old covenant with a new covenant, how that he could require Israel to do certain things for 2,000 years and then supersede those in this new movement called Christianity. And so it explains things like how Christ Christ is the great high priest, how that he is the final and supreme sacrifice for our sins. But if you notice in Hebrews chapter 8 verses 1 through 5, it talks about the tabernacle. And it says, now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum or the summary. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou shalt make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. And so here we have Scripture explaining Scripture couple of things I want to point out to you. One is the quotation, the citation of Exodus 25. He actually says here, hey, God said to Moses, make it after the pattern. But the other thing I want you to see is back there in verse 2, he says that he is a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, the true tabernacle. In the Greek, it is a word that conveys the idea of real or actual. He is a minister of the real tabernacle. The tabernacle that was not pitched or made by man's hands. It was a tabernacle that was made by God. And so the indication is that there is a tabernacle or temple in heaven that God had already made and that that is the pattern that Moses was following for the construction of the earthly tabernacle and later the temple. Again, if you look over at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 and, uh, 23 and 24, it says, It was therefore necessary that the pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered into the holy place made with hands, speaking of the earthly tabernacle or temple, which are the figures of the true. Same Greek word. And so those earthly tabernacle and temple were simply figures of the real tabernacle or temple 
but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now, when we get into the book of Revelation, we find that, that there is a temple in heaven and that the glory of God fills the temple in heaven and that there is activity coming out of the temple in heaven. And so what Hebrews is just telling us is that God had a temple in heaven. He had a holy place in heaven and that that is the pattern after which the tabernacle is patterned on earth. It also answers the question as to how Christ is the high priest and the great supreme sacrifice for sins in that he never entered into the temple in Jerusalem. He didn't apply the, his blood to the mercy seat in Jerusalem. Uh, Hebrews tells us that he entered into the temple in heaven and that that is where the blood is applied to the mercy seat in heaven which atones for our sins and covers the law that we could not keep so that God can make his dwelling with us permanently and finally and so the tabernacle bears great significance and uh, and I'll admit I, I, I believe that there is depth to it that I cannot plumb but I also believe that there is depth to it that God didn't fully explain and so what we're going to do tonight when we take inventory is we're going to speculate a little bit but we're going to speculate scripturally and, uh, and so uh, we're going to look at some of these materials that are used and uh, see the spiritual symbolism that's in the tabernacle uh, as we see how these materials correspond spiritually. And so back in Exodus chapter 25, we are uh, given this material list. The first one is gold. And uh, gold often typifies the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you remember in Revelation chapter 3, when he is uh, speaking to the church at Laodicea, he says, you, you think that you are rich and that you have need of nothing, but I counsel you to buy gold of me. Uh, I am told that it is estimated that there was over one ton of gold that was used in the construction of the tabernacle as they were making instruments out of gold, overlaying the ark out of gold, constructing those cherubims uh, out of gold. There was much gold that was used throughout that. And it's a, a typification, if you will, of the deity of Jesus Christ. Silver typifies redemption. And that is seen in Exodus chapter 30, verses 12 through 16, where uh, there is a, a, a monetary requirement for atonement. It actually says that it is the shekel of the sanctuary for the atonement or the ransom for the souls. And so when God tells Moses, hey, we need uh, silver for the, uh, the tabernacle, every element that goes into the construction of this is significant and symbolic and pointing towards some great greater soteriological or salvation truth and so gold typifies deity silver typifies redemption and brass typifies a death and judgment think about this in numbers 21 when the people of israel sin against god god sends a judgment and he sends in fiery or venomous serpents and the people get by, bit by the serpents and the people are dying from the serpent's bite. And when Moses makes intercession, God says to Moses, I want you to make a serpent out of brass, a brazen serpent. And so it's going to have the figure of the serpent. It's going to resemble the serpent, but it, it's not going to have the venom of the serpent. 
and you're going to put that brazen serpent on a staff and hold it up, and you tell the people of Israel, if they look to the serpent on the staff, they will be healed and saved. And as the narrative goes, everybody who looked was healed. You say, well, that's, uh, that's a different way of doing it. Never did it that way before, never did it that way after. Wonder why God did it what, that way that time. Well, we come into John chapter 3 when Jesus is having a conversation with Nicodemus about being born again. And he says, as the serpent, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What's the significance there? Well, Jesus Christ came in the form of sinful man, but without sin. He had to be crucified on that cross. And all who look to him in faith are saved from their sins, from the venomous bite of the old serpent, Satan. And so, brass is this typification of the death and judgment uh, that comes. And then we move into the materials, the cloth, and, and it's a little different for us because they, they're actually listed as colors, but understand that, that that color was a cloth that had that intrinsic color or had been dyed that color. And so blue uh, comes into play. Uh, God wants Moses to take up an offering of blue. And uh, blue typifies Christ as the heavenly one. And when you think about when Christ ascended, it says that, that the disciples were standing gazing up into heaven. And the angel said, why, why do you stand gawking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has went up into heaven will return. First uh, Thessalonians 4 tells us that... Uh, that, that Christ is going to come in the air, in the clouds, and call his church to be with him. The Bible says that when he returns the second time to establish his kingdom, uh, that he is going to come from the east, and every eye shall see him and behold him coming out of the heavens. And so the uh, blue points us to heaven and reminds us that uh, Christ uh, is the heavenly one. Uh, purple typifies Christ as the sovereign one. It was the color of of kings. As a matter of fact, if you remember when Jesus was being scourged before he was to be crucified in Mark 15, it says that they clothed him with purple and that they plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head and they began to salute him and say, Hail to the king of the Jews. And even though they in their minds were mocking him, they were actually speaking prophetic truth that he is the king of the Jews. Not only is he the king of the Jews, he is the king of kings. And so purple points us uh, towards his sovereignty. The next uh, color of material it is described is scarlet. Scarlet's the color of blood, and scarlet typifies Christ as the sacrificial one. Matthew's account says that they robed him, stripped him of his garment, and put on a scarlet robe. And the Bible reminds us that the scarlet blood of Christ poured from his body when he was on the cross. And so as God implements that, he's not just color-coordinating the tabernacle so that everything looks nice. But he is actually giving his people reminders or giving them uh, uh, insight into the coming Christ. Uh, then we find the fine linen. Fine linen speaks of righteousness. 
If you remember in Revelation 19.8, it says uh, that the bride, uh, the people of Christ, are clothed in fine linen because the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And so that fine linen is typifying the righteousness of Christ. He is the righteous one. There is no wrong in him. Next is the goat's hair. Goat's hair, that sounds lovely, doesn't it? Uh, goat's hair speaks of the prophetic service. Zechariah 13, 4 through 5, talks about the rough garment that the prophets would wear. If you remember John the Baptist, who really bridges uh, the gap, he's the last Old Testament prophet, and yet he's the forerunner of the Messiah, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he was girded in a garment of camel's hair. And so this goat's hair that is used here is the picture of the prophetic service that Christ would be not only the king, but he would also be the prophet. And then ram's skin speaks of his priestly office. Now you say, where do you get ram skin speaking of priestly office? Well, when we get to Exodus chapter 29, we will find that the high priest is consecrated, and he is consecrated not by a lamb, not by a goat, but by a ram. And that sacrifice is made and a wave offering is made that consecrates the high priest into his Office And so that ram's skin points towards the priestly office of Christ. As a matter of fact, I told you this morning that Christ in the New Testament, that English word translated Christ, really comes from a word that means anointed one. And that's significant because there were three anointees or anointed offices in the Old Testament. The first was the high priest. He was anointed with oil into his office. The next was the prophet. They were anointed into office with oil. And the third was the king. He was dubbed or crowned king and uh, anointed into the monarchy. And so Christ coming as the anointed one comes as the fulfillment of the prophet, the priest, and the king. He is Israel's great high priest. He is Israel's great prophet. He is Israel's great king. And then uh, we get to uh, the badger's skins, and uh, commentators believe that this speaks of the holiness of God as it is a repelling surface to all outside elements. That was the final layer that would go on the outside of that tabernacle and it had a repellent so that none of the water, dirt, debris, any of the elements would be able to penetrate that, saturate or stain any of the inner curtains and materials in the tabernacle. And then we are told that there was a certain type of wood that was used, and uh, that speaks of the human nature of Christ. Now, in, in, uh, in uh, Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, it says that Christ is the root of David. It says that he is the branch of Jesse in Isaiah. What is that talking about? What it is referring to this human nature of Christ that somehow God becomes a man and comes from the line of David and the line of David's father, Jesse, and that is typified by uh, that wood that is there. And then 
Oil typifies the Holy Spirit as the anointing one. In 1 John 2.27, it says that the anointing which you have, you received of him, it abideth on you. 1 John 2.20 says that we have an unction on high from the Holy One. And uh, just as the uh, prophet uh, was anointed in old, uh, every believer is anointed with the Holy Spirit of God. We have been saturated with the Holy Spirit of God. And the oil that was to be used in the tabernacle service is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Spices were to be used. Uh, for certain mixtures and also for incense and uh, spices were aromatic if you will and they typify the sweet smelling savor of Christ's sacrifice right uh, the bible talks about the sacrifices of the tabernacle that were mixed with the incense and the spices and that it would come into the nostrils of God and that it pleased him or satisfied him it was a testimony of the sacrifice and then in the New Testament, Ephesians 5, 2 says that as Christ also hath loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God, a sweet-smelling savor. And it is the idea that Christ satisfies the requirements of God, that God looks and sees and smells the sacrifice that Christ made, and he is satisfied in his judgment. And then the final materials are the jewels, the onyx stones, and the others. Uh, and those are talked about not set in the tabernacle, but they are placed in the ephod and the breastplate of the high priest. That breastplate would have uh, 12 stones on it, and the high priest would carry that. It would be a chain like a necklace almost and this large plate that had the stones on it, and he would wear that when he went into the Holy of Holies, and it was a representation of the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, we later read that this, uh, this is a picture or it typifies the treasure of Christ. Uh, in Isaiah, it talks about the bride being adorned with jewels. And, uh, and, and so as we think about that, this breastplate would be near the heart of the priest, and uh, Christ's bride is near to his heart. And so as we go through and we make our speculations, we understand that it's not exact science because God didn't say gold equates this, silver equates this, brass equates this. But as we observe Scripture and we pay attention, we say, you know what, it, it's pointing that direction. And so we take it in and we admire not just the tabernacle but the Christ to which it points. Furthermore, the entire tabernacle serves as a picture of Christ. If you remember in John chapter 1, John begins his gospel where no other gospel writer begins. He doesn't begin with the birth of Christ. He doesn't begin with the announcement of John the Baptist. He doesn't begin with the genealogy going back to Abraham or the genealogy going all the way back to Adam. He goes back to eternity past. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And then he fast-forwards and he says in John 1, 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Interestingly, the Word in the Greek that is translated dwelt is literally the word tabernacled. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. 
And here we have Jesus fulfilling this, this, this foretype. As God tabernacled or camped with his people, he made his dwelling in this temporary tent here. Likewise, Christ makes his temporary dwelling on earth. He tabernacled in the flesh. It wasn't his permanent dwelling. It was his temporary dwelling so that he could come and be among his people and serve as the mediator between them and their God. And so the tabernacle was God's mode for dwelling among his people. In fact, Exodus 25, verse 22, And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony. And so this tabernacle made it possible for God to come near his people and for his people to come near to him. Furthermore, the tabernacle was the center of life and worship. Remember, that tabernacle was set at the center of the camp, and the camp was arranged around it. The priestly families were around it, east, west, north, and south. And then the tribes were distributed, three to the east, three to the west, three to the north, three to the south. It was literally the center of their life and their worship. It was the center of their camp. And I'm telling you, Christ ought to be the center of our life, not just the center of our worship. The tabernacle was where God and man met together. And so in Old Testament Israel, it was unprecedented, right? God never had came and dwelt among his people. His people never had this Ark of the Covenant. They never had this most holy place where God's presence would descend. But once the tabernacle was built and established, God's presence inhabits it. That mercy seat, that altar gives them a way to where they can approach to God with the sacrifice. And there is this unprecedented meeting between God and man. And no doubt, Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of that. As Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy and says, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Not only do we see the meeting of mankind or human nature and divine nature in the hyperstatic union of Christ, but we also find the great mediator coming so that you and I can now meet with God. Isn't it wonderful? We don't have to make a sacrifice. We don't have to go through a priesthood. We don't have to wait for a day of atonement. We don't have to go through the ceremonial cleansing and spend the time outside the camp being unclean because we defiled ourselves in some way. We have the perfect ultimate tabernacle who has made it possible for us to meet with God and to live in God's presence. Get this, the tabernacle only had one entrance, one way in. There's a, there, there's a fence that we're going to see that goes around the tabernacle, and the fence had one gate, and it faced east. And when you went through the fence, then you would come in, and you would have uh, the, the altar where they made the burnt offerings, and then you would have the laver where the priests washed, and then you would approach to the tabernacle, and the tabernacle had one door, and it faced the same direction. It was east. There were no windows. There was no back door. There was no side door. There was no trap door. There was no skylight. One way in. And you know, there's only one way into Christ. It is by faith alone. 
We can't earn it. We can't trade for it. We can't bargain for it. We can't, we can't do enough service for it. There's only one way. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. The tabernacle housed the word of God. Right? I told you in that ark, that box, that sacred box where the mercy seat sat atop, what was inside was the testimony, the word of God. It was central. It was there. It was present all the time. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is the word. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. There are three that bear witness in heaven, the, the Father, the word, and the Holy Spirit. Not only that, the tabernacle uh, held the word of God and the Ark of the Covenant, but it was covered by the mercy seat. I gave you a preview of that earlier, but that mercy seat was the golden top that covered the ark. It was guarded by those two angelic uh, renderings, and that is where the blood was applied. You see, because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And it wasn't just enough to put a top on that box and say, okay, we're not going to look at the law. The testimony of the law is still there. And the only thing that would satisfy the requirements of the law was the sacrifice or the shedding of the blood. And Jesus Christ shed his blood for us and he applied his blood to the mercy seat in heaven, which makes it possible for you and I to be saved. The tabernacle housed the golden candlestick. Right? There's no windows in this thing. There is one door, but it's covered. It is, it is a tent flap, if you will. And so uh, it would have been a dark room, but there's a candelabra there, a candelabra that never goes out, that is fed, uh, gravitationally fed through the oil that would be placed inside of its hollow vessel and that they were to fill it every single day, that the light was never to go out. And you know, Jesus made the statement one time when he said, I am the light of the world. And so we have the candelabra in the tabernacle that is pointing to Jesus as the light of the world. Furthermore, the tabernacle had the table of showbread. Once you went inside that first room, there would have been a table, and on that table was fresh bread. It was called showbread. It was for show, not for eating. And uh, it was there, and it was put out fresh daily, every single day. And Jesus once said in John 6, I am the bread of life. And so as we begin to look around and take the inventory and we see the materials and how the tabernacle is laid out and what its function is, we can't help but say, you know what, that reminds me of Jesus. And that reminds me of what Jesus said. And he is the light of the world and he is the bread of life and he is the mercy seat that makes it possible for us to come together. He is the tabernacle, the one who comes and dwells among us. And so the typology in some ways is speculative and, and we may vary in our opinion of what each element typifies, but there is no doubt that the tabernacle is one of the great pictures of Christ in the Old Testament. 
And so in the upcoming weeks, we will examine more closely uh, as each part is detailed for us in chapters 25 through 31 from the fence that surrounded the tabernacle to the inner sanctum known as the Holy of Holies. And, and we'll see the components uh, required to establish a temporary tabernacle and we will gain greater understanding and appreciation for the full and final work of Christ. Because really, that is the goal. My goal is not to be able to have you sketch out the tabernacle when we're done. My goal is not for you to be able to name every element that is in the court and in the tabernacle. The goal of this study is that when we get done studying the tabernacle, we have a more full understanding and appreciation for Christ. Because that is what it is pointing to. And that Christ, listen, this is, this is one that has captured my attention and I hope it will yours. We go all the way from that cloth tabernacle in the Old Testament to the fulfillment of Christ as the tabernacle to the fact that every Christian, every believer gets turned into a tabernacle what know you not that your body is the temple of the holy ghost which is in you which you have of god and you are not your own for you are bought with a price therefore glorify god in your body and in your spirit which are god's so I'm telling you, the tabernacle study is going to be beneficial to us in our understanding of Christ, but also in our understanding of how we can glorify him and serve him in our tabernacle. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the details that you do reveal to us, that you give to us. Thank you, Lord, that there is a reward for those who diligently seek and diligently study and for those, Lord, who inquire and mine out the wonderful treasures of your word. Father, it is never our desire to misrepresent you, but we also, Lord, want to do you justice by taking in every consideration of how vast and wonderful and descriptive every element that you chose for this tabernacle is and how that it all points us to Christ, to his deity, to his sovereignty, to his humanity, to his illuminating power, to his salvation. And so, Father, I pray and ask that you would help us to go in with wide eyes looking at everything that you describe in these next few chapters. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.